It's The Inch Show, Australia's only show dedicated to innovation from Adelaide, Australia and across the globe. Hello again, it's David Grice and Troy Sincock. This show is all about inspiration, innovators and entrepreneurs, startups, people up to big things. And if you have loved the stories on The Inch Show, make sure you resubscribe to The Inch Show on Apple Podcasts. There's a new one with a coloured logo. If you subscribe to the one with the black and white logo, that is going to disappear very shortly. So resubscribe to the one with the coloured logo. Yeah, please do. We don't want you to go anywhere because we love having you listening to us. We do. One of the friends of the show, Scott Bucock, joins us again today. Scott came to fame after being on reality show Shark Tank. Yeah, look, I mean, he came up with this concept about having a peg that you put on the clothesline to hang your clothes up, but having a hook on it because his wife had a dress that has those, you know, those thin little straps on it. uh, And he really wondered how he, you know, basically what those loops were for in the first place. But then on top of that is how he could hang that on the clothesline with a peg, a traditional peg. Mm -hmm. So he came up with this peg with a hook. He pitched it on Shark Tank and got a whole swag of money to do it. That's right. And the company Hegs Australia is now global. What's really interesting is that, you know, the way they market their products globally, they have to look at those types of things, they have to look at shipping and how they can get things to where they need to go, given that they're being produced here. And there's all sorts of stuff that he's come up against which at the time he was pitching the idea, he didn't really have to think too much about. No, but now it's, you know, it's a global brand. It's all of a sudden stuff that he thinks about, even the packaging, even down to the packaging, what's on the picture, on the package that goes out. I mean, having to think all those things through and not even realising that they potentially could be issues for him in, in different markets around the world. Yeah, Scott from Hegs Australia is a really generous guy. He's got lots to share and now he's got another innovation to reveal to us. So, Scott, we know all about Hegs and how you've taken over the world there. There's stockers from the US to Europe. Now you've got a new project. Tell us about that. Yeah, the new innovation, uh, we've nicknamed it Poppy. Uh, it's a pop-up laundry basket uh, and it's simply come out of necessity, same as the Heg, to be honest. Um, uh, hanging out your washing, you imagine getting all your washing out of the washing uh, machine, you put it in the basket, you're lifting it up, you're taking it outside, you're putting it down and then you're up and down to the line putting your washing out. So that's when I realised, wait a second, you've, there must be a better way to get it from the ground to hip height so you can just take your washing out and you don't have that bending over. And then I started Googling and I realized one of the largest back injury problems is actually lifting the washing basket. Because, you know, washing machines are 12 kilo. Some of them are 12 kilo. So it's lifting 12 kilograms, you know, 20, 30, 40 meters out to your washing line. And that's when Poppy was invented. This is absolutely extraordinary that, you know, your previous experience had nothing to do with people's laundries at all. You've discovered pegs and now you're entirely revolutionising that home in the house. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, I like to say laundries are the new kitchen. Everyone used to spend their money in kitchens and now they're spending their money in laundries. They just want to make them better and better. And, uh, and, and it's one of those things that every time you use something, you go, there must be a better way. And there usually is. Perhaps just describe to us what Poppy is. Or what it looks like. Sure. Actually, the innovation came about when I was traveling and I, you know, your luggage, when you have the little pop-up, you press the button and, and it extends up. And I went, oh, that's not a bad little idea. And went home and thought, wow, if we could actually use that technology and integrate a laundry basket with a pop-up system, then that would solve it. And that's when I realized if you design it around and make it uh, good looking for want of a better word, you press the buttons, you lift it up and it locks in. And there you go. You're at uh, waist height and you can put your washing out. And that's where it all started from the the humble luggage, the humble uh, 
suitcase. And, you know, what a, a great thing too, because it means that uh, everyone gets the opportunity to use Poppy. Like, you know, if I, I'm tall, I'm about six foot four, there are things for me that are like super difficult and, you know, and it really does have impact in your day-to-day life. But knowing that there is a, a product which would be flexible enough for me to use, then my girlfriend can use it in a different way. Do you see that being sort of commonplace in the world of innovation, you know, looking at things that can be pivoted in such a way that the application exists for all sorts of people in all environments? Well, it does. And if I ask you now, um, you know, if you had a basket where you could wash your dog, you could uh, have some beers on the on the veranda, uh, if there's a rolling system you could just roll out, your answer probably is no. So the extension of Poppy will be a solid basket that you can just swap it out with your laundry basket and put your solid basket in. So it's actually the trolley system is the innovation. The trolley system is the mechanism. And really one of the most important things for me was for the elderly. You know, a lot of mums, dads, the elder, being able to wheel that, pull your washing out, wheel it outside with ease, lift it down the curb going outside the door, across the grass, across the pavement. Uh, you know, it's going to help a lot and it'll stop tripping and back injuries and the whole lot. What's been happening for Hegs actually in the in the meantime? Obviously, we, we spoke to you some months ago now. You've had a massive journey since. So where, where have you been at? Yeah, this is exciting for Hegs. It originally started as the Hegs Peg, uh, and Hegs has elevated itself to, I guess, uh, a vendor that helps other entrepreneurs and uh, innovators bring their product to market. And Poppy's another, obviously, an invention internally, but we're working with a couple of electricians here in South Australia that invented another product that will hit the shelves in the next three or four months. Uh, we're working with older ladies and younger men and a whole range that have an idea and just don't know how to bring that product to market. So I guess the Heggs brand has become a a little bit of a vision for people going, wow, if he can bring a peg with a hook to market, we must be able to bring our products to market. And usually they can, but it's all about how to sell it, how to make it and how to distribute it. And is your brand uh, just focused on things in and around the home? It is at the moment. Uh, for now, we're concentrating on the laundry section. Uh, then we'll move it into the kitchen section and the garden. Uh, it's, it's funny, the new invention that's coming out, which is primarily laundry, with a little bit of innovation, and I can't wait to talk about it at some point soon, it actually can be used in sheds and gardens and laundries and pool fencing and a whole range. So, you know, we're, we're always working towards, is it just for laundry or is it actually multi-purpose in some way, shape or form? Do you sleep at night? I do. I sleep very well. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's just like you inspire me every time we, we talk because just hearing how you're thinking all the time about, you know, it's not just about the laundry, but it's about all the other applications. How do you sort of stay in that mindset? Is that something that you have to really consciously work on or is this just a natural thing that happens for you as you're thinking about your products and services? Yeah, years ago, I tried to think why I do what I do and I realised it wasn't just myself, but everyone is, is, I have a little bit of a cycle um, and it's called winning, which is why, idea, network, no man's land, innovate, now the how and go for it. That's a very quick thing. But the big part of it in the middle is the two ends, network and no man's land. Network is where you actually get all the facts and figures and do your Googling and speak to your friends and speak to anyone you know on bringing that product or that idea to market. And then you move into no man's land. And that's where everyone says, no, that's been number four. No, that's uh, never a good idea. No, that's never going to work. And if you can get through no man's land from one trench to the other, that's when you move into the innovational stage. So I always think to myself, where am I in that cycle? Am I in the network stage, the no man's land stage, or into the innovation stage? As long as I know where I am, I can get through it. 
And what connects you to all this, um, Scott? Like, what is the motivation? Is it the thrill of you know coming up with the idea? Is it getting it to market? Is it helping people? I think there's two main focuses. One is physically seeing the product in your hand. That's the exciting part. I never forget when that uh, first HEG arrived after being prototyped and was in your hot little hands. Uh, the second one is obviously seeing the product on shelf. To see it, uh, we just rolled out a product and it hit the major supermarkets again last week. And to see the new bag design, the new look, the new feel, the new brand sitting on shelf again, uh, there's something that just is exciting about that. And I have a, I have three containers now of uh, hi- historical innovation and they're all involved in HEG. So we've had bags and HEGs and uh, posters and, you know, so keep it. If you ever do any prototyping or any innovation or sketches or drawings, keep them because I guarantee you years down the track, you're going to want to look back and think where it all started. So Scott, remind us how you actually came to finance HEGs. Financing is always a difficult part and everyone thinks you have to have $50,000 to begin with. You don't. Firstly, start with just a prototype. So walk down to your local university and say, hey, I have an idea. Um, Could I just get a 3D printed prototype? Spend the $30, $50. And then next time, make it better and better. And then you're going to have to do a website and then you're going to have to do a marketing. So I guess for me, it was spending little bits at a time Mm -hmm. and then eventually going, hey, I've got a product now. I've got a business now. And then I went out to investment. And of course, that was involving Shark Tank at that point, saying, okay, we're now into the hundreds of thousands. We need someone to back it. But you can only get those hundreds of thousands or you can only get financing when they believe in you or they believe in your product. So move through the steps and then eventually you'll get there. Mm. Now, people, not everyone has access to Shark Tank. And in fact, when it comes to this new product, Poppy, you're doing a Kickstarter campaign. That would be something that a lot of you know startups and entrepreneurs and innovators, that would be often their first step, right? It would, correct. Uh, it's funny. Everyone looks at the Hegs brand and, and to be honest, everyone thinks we're rolling in cash, which is not true. Uh, so when it comes to uh, an object like Poppy, it's going to cost $100,000 for the tool. And a tool can sit somewhere about 1.3 metres high by 1.3 metres wide. Imagine a big, solid piece of steel, and you've got to cut that in half, and then you have to make Poppy in it. So that costs a hundred grand. So financing now is simply, no, we don't have that cash sitting in the bank. So you've got to go out and think of new ways to one, market the product, to two, see if people actually want it. Because at the end of the day, if they don't want it, why build it? And then the third one is to finance it. Uh, so we're trying something new. We're trying something different. And Kickstarter is a very well-recognized crowdfunding source in America and uh, and Australia actually it launched about a year ago. So we're going to try that platform and hope people uh, support Poppy. And that's the value of a platform like that, isn't it? Because it does, it, sh- it shows you where your customers are and, and the demand for it. And then at the same time, it's actually allowing you to build the finance to, to get what you need done. Yeah, exactly. It's quite interesting when we press launch, uh, we had a little bet. Uh, we said, hey, who's the first person to purchase it and where? And the first person to purchase a poppy was actually in New York. The second person was in Germany. So you got to watch people around the world believing in a in a product or believing in a in a campaign. Uh, so it, and now, obviously, it's all about Australia and, and focusing on our sales in Australia. So just going back to the investment side of things, how have you found working with investors? Has it been something that's restricted you or has it opened you? There's two sets of investors. There's uh, the shareholders who want equity in your company, and there's investors that want to be paid a return. They're really the only two things. Uh, So you've got to really think, do you want to give away part of your company and why? 
Or do you just want money and you're happy to pay interest back and eventually they go away and you get to keep that percentage? We have 50-50 in HEGS, we have shareholders and we have investors. I don't think we'll ever, when I first started, someone said to me, he goes, when you get your next investment, it won't be your last investment. And when we've got our next investment, it won't be our last investment. And I've learned that's actually very true because growth, you need to grow and you need money to grow. So the old analogy, cash is king, is bang on. I can only imagine that sometimes investors could potentially be pulling you back depending on the amount of say or sway they have with what you're doing. Um, how have you found that process? Is it, is it been something that's easy or is it just, you know, that constant, I've got to work on my relationships with my investors and, you know, it's that constant grind to make sure that everyone's happy? Yeah, you probably won't get an investor unless, one, they like you or two, they're going to get a return. They're the two things that people focus on. Quite often, investors invest because they have cash spare. So they've either got to be one of those two things. I work on my relationships a lot because they're investors today for a small amount. If you turn it around and become successful, then they'll invest with you again and again. So don't just take their money, run, and then forget about them and go, oh, here's your money back. They actually will back you and continue to back you business after business, product after product, as long as you are the nice person, you do the right thing, you work hard, and you uh, and you obviously give their money back at some point in time. And the same would be said for your customers as well, wouldn't it? It's not just a, a transaction; people buy some stuff and then that's it. I get the sense that you know you approach things in a really similar way. How important is you know really telling your story and having people invested in that rather than just the product itself? Yeah, the customers, um, if you look at a lot of triangles, uh, business models, uh, the customers are actually the end sell. They go, oh, we build the product, we come up with the idea, we do this, and then we sell it to customers. We reverse that completely. When these innovators and entrepreneurs walk in our office, we go, well, let's talk to the customer first. Do they actually want it? Why would they want it? And I call it the visual, the verbal, and the viral. My three Vs, is it visually good, is it verbally good, and is it virally good? So we concentrate on that first. The building of the product, the the development, the, uh, the all that end stuff is really quite low on the uh, on the agenda. It's really primarily important to make sure that that product or the idea that you have can be sold. So customers are absolutely number one. It's interesting that you say that because often innovators think about their product before they think about the customers. And, and I feel like um, often when we're hearing stories about what people are creating, it is just very much about the product rather than the user. And having that focus towards the user is, is absolutely sensational. I mean, working with um, music and technology, for example, you know, a lot of people just say, well, here's a, here's a problem to solve the problem for a musician. Yeah. In fact, they don't think about how to solve a problem for their customer who's purchasing what the musician is creating. So it's really cool to, to sort of hear that, you know, you, you've got that focus and flipping that around. Was that something that you learnt or was it something that just sort of automatically was natural to you as, a, as an innovator and inventor? No, I, I think I learned is definitely primary. It is not my background. Manufacturing was never my background and certainly selling at a mass platform or volume wasn't my background. And it's funny because even four years later in Heg's world, we get people come in and they go, oh, I've got this great product and I've designed this, this awesome box and, and here it is, it's this big and this long. And I go, wait a second, there's two sets of customers. There's the customer that buys the product and then there's the buyer that puts it on the shelf for the customer to buy the product. So I would look at it and go, uh-oh, we have a problem. It's too long. It's too tall. You're shipping too much air. You're, it's too fat. It doesn't fit on a clip strip. It, it, the shelf is only 60 centimetres deep. So there's the buyer 
really that, that is primarily the first person that you've got to talk to to say, does it fit? Is it the right size? Is it the right color? Does it hang? And then, of course, you go, when somebody's walking past, are you going to stop them in their tracks and go, I want one of them? So there's two sets of customers, and a lot of people don't realize that. They come in with a product finished, and now I go, hey, we can't sell that. It's the wrong size. Mm, this is really interesting. Mm. I'm really interested in in your journey, you, you know, in terms of you said that you had no experience in manufacturing and, and especially just on a local level, let alone the fact that you now are at the helm of a global company. Well, what have you put in place to help you sort of get to the level of, of being a global CEO as opposed to just somebody who's making something locally? Yeah, it's a, it's a really big question. Uh, and learning it, uh, exporting is a minefield, both ex- exporting out of Australia or exporting into Australia. And I go overseas, I've just come back from Chicago and meeting a lot of people going, oh, we're thinking of exporting. And I go, wait a second, they're in America exporting to Australia. So you forget that everyone's doing the same thing as we are. So to solve that problem, we've set up Hegs USA. So we have an office in USA now um, in Florida. Uh, we're setting up Hegs UK. So we've just we've learned very quickly that buyers or, or consumers and companies want to purchase from the country of choice. Now, that doesn't mean you don't make it here in Australia or make it in the country of choice. It just means you give, it gives you that direct communication in time frame. Don't forget, we're at 17 hours behind America. So, you know, I, I can only work so many hours in a day. So we set up teams around the world to be able to do that. I really like how thoughtful you've been about, um, you know, moving into other countries because often the conversation is about, um, you know, perhaps being a Western country and then trying to export your products to a Eastern country. And so there is the language barrier. So although these countries, you know, that you're working in often are, you know, English-speaking customers and you know and buyers and that kind of thing. There are the nuances in the in the different countries. What sort of things have you had to get around? Like what expertise didn't you have? Well, a great example is us thinking we know everything, and on our very first bag, uh, we put bras and knickers on the front of the bag, and then realised that we couldn't export them into the UAE. Mm. You just can't have that. And we went, oh my god, we didn't even think about that. So that is a really visual example of not asking what you're allowed to bring into a country. Mm. Uh, But now we're actually rolling out in Germany. Uh, We've got TV shopping in uh, Korea and uh, France and Belgium, Russia. So we're we're rolling out in language as well. But we've learned, hey, just just bring it back a little, find out what you're allowed to um, market over there, find out what you're allowed to promote over there. And again, ask lots of questions. It all sounds really simple about this whole exporting to other countries, but I'm sure there's a lot of hurdles that you have to jump through, especially with the import-export duties and, and different things like that. What have you found to be the most significant hurdle when you're exporting? What I found to be the most significant hurdle um, in exporting is logistics. Just the physical moving a product from A to B and knowing what the duties are going into those countries. I don't think there's a definite answer on any of it because I'll give you an example. If we're shipping a container of Hegs to America, where in America? Is it California, which is 20-odd days to get there, or is it Tampa, where you're going to go through the, the Panama Canal, which is 45 days? So sending a container to California compared to Tampa, same country, could be an extra $2,000. So then you have to divide that $2,000 divided by every bag within the container. So you've really got to do a lot of formulation and division of what it actually costs you per bag, per item. Um, poppies, for example, will fit about 700 of them in a 40-foot container. Hegs, we fit 48,000 of them in a container, a 40-foot container. So it's a completely different metric. 
Yeah, so you've always got to think about uh, where you're sending it and how much you're sending it for and try to build that price in. When you're setting up your offices abroad, what do you need? Like, what's the starting point? Does it just start with one guy who's connected that, that knows the plan or is there a certain you know, level of expertise you need in a, a small team that you start with? You need an address. You need a phone number. You need a contact. They're the three primary. I don't care whether you just go to a virtual office or, or a warehouse or whatever it is. You need some sort of point of contact. We did that to begin with. And it's funny, I was there last week going, right, now we're about to launch into HSN and uh, Home Depot and different places. We actually have to have 20 pallets sitting there. So now we've gone from a virtual office to a bigger office, a sit-down office, to now a little warehouse. So we took it in stages too. We didn't just go, right, we're going to send 40-foot container into America. We need a big office. We need a big warehouse. You just have to be – it's based around money, really. What can you afford at the time? Um, so don't think – everyone says, oh, I've got three offices in America. Well, that's great, but what does that mean? It really doesn't mean anything unless you're actually selling the items on the other end. Is having a global office actually meant that you've had to seek more investment to do that? Or is that something you've been able to self-finance through the, the journey? No, we're, we're in phase three of investment. We're actually currently in it right now. Uh, we've been through the, the Shark Tank phase. We went through the second investment phase. And now we're into our third investment phase. Uh, simply because of our growth, we just secured another 1,100 stores in Australia. Uh, we're about to secure 4,000 in America. Uh, we've just the Aldi UK, Ireland and Scotland, another uh, couple of hundred thousand bags and uh, Germany. So we're into phase three and, you know, I've resigned to the fact there will be a phase four. There just always will be. And you never know, eventually we may see Heggs sitting there as uh, a, a, an on the stock market item. You never know. Let's hope so. That's the goal. So for, from, uh, for Poppy's um, crowdfunding campaign, what do, you, what do you need people to do? Yeah, we need them to jump on Kickstarter, type in Poppy, nice and easy, P-O-P-P-I, or you can go to Heggs um, and type it in there and you'll see it. Press it. If you could just buy one. All we need, it's $105,000. It sounds like a lot, but the item itself is obviously at a higher value. So if you can just buy one, as soon as we hit that threshold, it's going to happen. You are going to be the very first people to get a poppy before any retailer around the world. And then obviously it'll go to retail later on at some point in time when we can get it to there. But go on to there, buy one poppy. And if you could do that, it'll come to fruition and you'll see another great Aussie innovation come to life worldwide. Scott Bucock from Heggs Australia. Thanks for introducing us to Poppy. Congratulations on the idea. Best of luck and thanks for joining us on the intro. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. It's David Grice and Troy Sincock on the In Show podcast. We're going to find out what's in from an incredible innovator on the next podcast. Yeah, we're going into the world of entertainment and uh, production services. You know, people that supply the PAs and the lighting rigs and the staging and all those sorts of things. You wouldn't believe the amount of innovation that's going on in that space right now. Yeah, well, there's a lot of heavy lifting, isn't there? But, you know, what people are doing with, you know, festivals and that kind of stuff, it's, it's really just not enough to have someone with a guitar on a stage with thousands of people in front of them anymore. Like people are looking for experiences, aren't they? They really are. And and also with the technology that's available to us today, we're all looking for a more interactive way to go and experience live music or, or a, a theatre show or, or whatever. Yeah, so on the next podcast, we've got Lako Novakovic from Novatech. Remember, we had him on the show um, last year, and um, he's talking all about the development of new technologies and how they're impacting his business. Great. That's on the next In Show podcast. The In Show Interview. Subscribe to the In Show podcast on iTunes. A Dave and the Beanstalk production.